0: As you open your Bibles this morning to John's Gospel, the first chapter, want you to consider the magnitude of things, the size of things, if you will. According to 2015 Pew Research data, there's 7.3 billion people in the world, and of those 7.3 billion, 2.3 billion are Christians. That is staggering. Now, obviously we could debate and scrutinize a little bit about what is meant by Christian here. Uh, This is simply the number that claim Christianity as their religion for those that still claim a religion. The number of Christians who have experienced the new birth and are living lives that have actually been changed and transformed by their encounter with Jesus, well, we think that number would be far smaller. But even if that number is far smaller, that number is still a whole lot bigger than where we started from. Which is basically zero. As we continue in John's Gospel this morning, in the transition between John the Baptist's ministry and the very beginnings of Jesus' earthly ministry, we find in today's passage Jesus calling His very first followers. The the very beginnings of the church as we know it, which in fact, isn't starting from zero, but it is built upon the foundation of all God's people who had up to that point looked in faith to the future of a coming Redeemer. And we find this morning the very first followers who prepared by the ministry of John the Baptist are the first ones to follow and trust Jesus not as a promised figure in the future, but as someone who's here and now in the flesh. And there's so much to dig into in our passage this morning. I'd like to ask you to stand if you're able. It is a lengthier passage than we have been looking at, so take that into mind and and please have a seat uh, if you need to. But if you can stand for the reading of God's Word, I invite you to do that. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day again, John, that is the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened in the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. May God bless the teaching of His inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative Word. Let's pray together. Oh, indeed, Lord Jesus, by Your grace, would we see You in this Text in this passage, in these verses, would you see how you are very much concerned with what we are seeking from you? And we should be very concerned and comforted by the fact of how you know us. Would you take these two things and would you press them deep into our hearts? Would you change us by them? Would you draw us closer to you in the process? that you might be exalted and lifted up, that you might be glorified. You are worthy. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Please be seated. So this passage, admittedly, is just overflowing. There's so much here. If this were a Sunday school lesson or a Bible study, I would love to just plow through verse by verse and share with you every delicious morsel that is here right much like last night if you were here for the thanksgiving spread that we had right to, to get a little sampling of every single one of those 40 dishes that were on the table but this isn't a sunday school lesson and it's not a bible study it's a sermon right so what's the difference well the difference is i really want to bring this passage to bear on your life in these few moments that we have together right i don't want to teach you a bunch of stuff i don't want you to leave with more knowledge. I want you to have this passage impressed upon your life, on your heart, and on your soul. And so to do that, we're going to leave some of the dishes unsampled. We're going to take much larger helpings of a couple of things. And I decided maybe the best way for us to get through this passage was to pay attention to two important questions that are asked here. One is a question that Jesus asks. One is a question that one of his new followers asks. And these two questions have significance not just for this passage, but really thematically in the whole of John's gospel, you're going to see these two things come up again and again. And the first question, two of John the Baptist's followers, hearing him say once again, behold, the Lamb of God, we've seen that before, well, they turn and they follow him. Look there in 37 and 38. They turn and follow him Jesus sees, hey, there's a couple of guys following me, and he turns and asks them, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? And You all know, this is a loaded question. Jesus sees two guys following and he wants to know why. What are you after? What is it you expect to get from following me? Throughout his ministry, the people Jesus encounters are seeking a wide variety of things from him. Some want a healing. Some want to be fed. Some want a sign. Some want a better life. Some want to know how to have eternal life. Some are apparently following him because they think he might be the next big thing. They think he might be significant, and we see that hinted at in verses 45 and 46, right? Uh, where Philip found Nathaniel and said, hey, we found him. We found the one that Moses wrote about. We found the one the prophets prophesied about. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, what? That's not possible. Because nothing good comes out of Nazareth right? Insert there for Nazareth, whatever you think the, the town that's lesser than Orangeburg is, right? Nothing good comes out of there. Nathaniel says, I'm looking for something big. I'm looking for something significant. And because of his prejudices against Nazareth, for whatever reasons, he says, well, this clearly can't be it. What are you seeking? Why are you following him? What do you expect from Jesus? Throughout the Gospels, John's included, Jesus can tend to be a little tough on folks based on what they're seeking from him. And many times he will turn folks away. He has some very hard things to say to folks, like let the dead go back and bury their own dead like go and sell all you have see I think Jesus can pretty easily detect when people come to him and they want something from him and they don't just want him and we talked some about that earlier on in John's gospel when we were in verses 4 and 5 and I had a sermon that I titled stop using Jesus Right? Because very often we use Jesus to get life. We use Jesus to get a better life. We use Jesus because we hope to have eternal life in Him. But verse 4 in John's first chapter says, In Him was life. Right? He's not the path to some life that's out there. He's life. He's the point. He's the treasure that you ought to be seeking. And I, and I think that's part of what he's getting at in this passage. Hey, what are you seeking and then at the end of this passage, where he's impressed one of his followers with this supernatural knowledge he demonstrates about him, verses 50 and 51, the followers just wowed and blown away. Ooh, you, you know me. You had some insight into who I was. And Jesus says, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened... And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is that about? It's actually a very clear allusion to Genesis 28. And to a dream that Jacob had. Jacob who was running for his life. Away from his brother Esau. From whom he had stolen his birthright. And so he's on the Lamb, and he has this vision in a dream recorded in Genesis 28. Verse 12, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. So, right there is quite a gracious promise given to this lying deceiving runaway but note what's in this vision is a ladder and this ladder bridges the gap between earth and heaven right the gap that that sin created the gap that existed ever since adam and eve were expelled from the garden and a cherubim with a flaming sword was put at the entrance to keep them from coming back in A divide has been created that cannot be crossed. But, in Jacob's dream, a ladder crosses that divide. And then Jesus takes this vision. And there's not a ladder in Jesus telling of it. What is there instead of a ladder? Himself. He inserts himself in place of the latter. He is the means of bridging that divide. And that's ultimately what Andrew and Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniel and you and I all need to be seeking from Jesus. Not some sign or benefit or significance that Jesus might offer. We need to be seeking from Jesus the very way in which he bridges that gap between heaven and earth that he would, in fact, cross that divide on the cross, right? Paying for the very acts of sin and rebellion that we committed that create that chasm. That's the one and only thing to seek from Jesus. It's how at the very cost of his own life, he made a way. Now... In addition to what are we seeking from him, there's a second question that I want us to consider that I really want to be pressed down deep into your souls this morning. And it's the one that Nathaniel asked Jesus. All right, so after Nathaniel asks his snarky, prejudicial question about something good coming out of Nazareth, Jesus sees him coming. Verse 47. Jesus sees him coming and says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? How do you know me? Y'all, to be known by someone is a wonderful thing. And it can also be a terrifying thing. For, for Jesus to know us is wonderful, right? It is comforting. It makes you feel like you matter right he knows the number of hairs on your head be they large or small he knows your comings and your goings that's wonderful it's also terrifying uh he knows he knows you he knows your thoughts he knows your heart's deepest desires we'll see again and again in john's gospel how well he knows people and his knowledge will be a lot of things very often his knowledge will be omniscient right he will display knowledge that he could only know if he was in fact divine and not simply a man and that's the point of his revealing that kind of knowledge that's right, so the point of any of the signs, the miraculous and supernatural signs that he does, is to get us to recognize his divinity, to get us to recognize that he is the very Son of God, right? That we come to, to the end of, that's the only logical explanation for this, right? The only way he could know this about me is if he himself is God. That's why Jesus points out that Nathaniel was standing under a fig tree, right? Odd little fact. (laughs) But it's not a magic trick. It's not to get him to ooh and ah. It is literally to make his jaw drop and to connect the dots. How in the world could he have known that I was standing under a fig tree before I came over here? He must be the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's, he's the son of God. He's the king of Israel. There's is more of his, uh, his exclamation there. Both of which were common messianic titles. right? Titles that they had given in their long expectation, and their long held hopes that Messiah was coming, that the rescuer would come. One of the commentators that I read talking about Jesus' uh, fig tree comment says, This is not the cheap trick of a clairvoyant. This is the apocalyptic son of man. This is who we're dealing with here. So Jesus' knowledge of us is, is omniscient. He knows what only God could know. But his knowledge is also insightful. It gets to the heart of who we are. When Jesus sees Nathaniel coming, uh, and in verse 47, he makes this comment. He says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. Now that is an interesting little comment. And it's actually kind of a backhanded compliment. He's not really praising a virtue in Nathanael. It's more the case of he's trying to find the good in the situation. What, what positive thing could I say here? Because he's already said this really prejudicial thing about both him and Nazareth, right? Which, which could not have been more wrong. But instead of condemning him for it, Jesus says, well, at least he's not being two-faced, at least with him, what you see is what you get. Okay? At least with him, he's not saying one thing while believing something different in his heart. And Jesus, I think, knows that that's a good starting point. Jesus can work with that. Right? Jesus can work with his blunt honesty and his prejudice and whatever else. He can work with that a lot easier than he could if he was saying the right words but harboring those thoughts in his heart. He'll run into that, a lot of that in his ministry. People giving lip service while their hearts are far from him. At least Nathaniel isn't pretending. And there's one more example in this passage of Jesus knowing someone. And it to me, it's the, the most encouraging. It's the one, I think, that gives us so much hope. Earlier in the passage, Andrew... He goes and gets his brother Simon and Peter. And when you see Andrew, Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. So there's a little side observation and application about evangelism, right? To, to be commended in, in Andrew, to be an example to be followed by us. He's always bringing people to Jesus. Um, verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So what is up with Jesus on the spot all of a sudden changing somebody's name? You're so-and-so, not anymore. You're now so-and-so. Well, first off, it speaks to the sheer authority that Jesus had to be able to do that. Right? Yeah, I know that's what your father called you. We're changing that. But it's more than that. It speaks to the knowledge that he has of people. Now, we might be tempted to say, oh, he sees something in Simon. He thinks, ooh, he's going to do something as my follower. He needs a different name. He needs a name that's more fitting for what he's going to do. A name like Peter, which means rock. You see in this passage lots of explanations in parentheses. right? John knows that he's going to have both Jewish readers and Greek readers, and so anytime he's using a a Jewish or Semitic or an Aramaic term uh, like rabbi, uh, like Cephas, like Messiah even, he'll put something in parentheses for his Greek readers to help them understand. That's all that is going on there, and and that's what we see here. Um, To see him rename Simon, a name that means rock, and to think oh that's because Jesus is seeing something in him is to miss the point entirely he doesn't change his name based on what he sees in him he changes his name based on what he's going to do in him you hear that difference Right, He does not change His name based on what He sees in Him. He changes His name based on what He knows He's going to do and change and transform and create in Him. The third thing about the way that Jesus knows us is that His knowing is a type of knowing that changes us. It's transformative. It's life-changing. And, and if you know much about the story of Peter... If you know of his brash and arrogant boasting of, I will follow you anywhere, Jesus, even to the death. And then if you know the rest of the story and you know of his abject failure and his very quick turning from Jesus and denying him three times at the first instance of a problem. No, Jesus doesn't see strength and stability and immovability in Peter and, and, and Simon and say, Oh, I need to name you Rock. No, if, if Jesus were going to change his name to something that more accurately reflected who he was, he'd have to find the Greek word for jello or, or, or the Greek word for that little white dandelion puff that you, you blow and phew, it's gone. No, Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, to rock, because he knows that's what he's going to make of Peter. That's how he's going to change and transform him through his grace and mercy. Jesus knows us in a way that changes us. Does that not give you hope? Does that not give you confidence this morning? If you've been struggling with sin, If you've been wondering if you will ever best this temptation that keeps rearing its ugly head? Do you wonder if you will ever grow? Do you wonder if these fruits of the Spirit will ever show up? Jesus knows you, and He knows you in a way that changes you into who He wants you to be. Is that what you are seeking? Is that why you're following him? Is that what you want from him? That's what he's ready to do. As as he bridges the gap between heaven and earth, he's going to change you in the process. So I want those two questions. What are you seeking? Why are you following him? And the question of, how does he know me? How does he? I want those two questions in the back of your mind and deep in your heart all week long. Let's pray. Father, that you would know us so intimately, that you would know us and love us first, that you would move toward us while we were still rebels and enemies, and that you would move toward us in a way to bridge the chasm that we created through our rebellion and that You would do it at such great cost to Yourself, ought to leave all of our jaws dropped open wide, dumbfounded and speechless at Your grace and at Your mercy. Would You take the truths from Your Word this week? Would You take those two questions? Would You cause them to come up again and again and again in our minds? of both what we're seeking from Jesus and of how He knows us. And would You change us in the process? We pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.